he's a fabulous dressmaker. She's a fabulous homewrecker or something, you know. Like, I am a phantom ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> we're holding on uh, to that one for like the last six months probably. I, yeah. There was no like moment when Alma rips open one of his suits to find out that he's HIV Alma's positive. Or, yes. or just some ridiculous. <laughs> I love how we went in very different directions there. <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, I have AIDS. <laughs> anyway, that would be quite the. Uh, it would be that's, I mean, the old dress confessional. Yeah. Oh, you got. I me, have but, four black children. <laughs> like the next time she's like, oh, so you have AIDS? Like, did you go into my pajamas? Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On today's episode of Film Tank, we discuss the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, which is Phantom Thread. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com. Or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome into episode 141 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with just Nick Cheney today. Hey, hey, hey! I am a phantom ready to go. Yeah! <laughs> We're holding on uh, to that one for like the last six months, probably. I, yeah. Like Although, I, I wrote it down mm-hmm. uh, on... March seventh, twenty seventeen. The moment I heard the title of the movie, no, I just I don't. I was gonna say I think it was later than that because the title actually didn't get released until very late. That's true. All we knew for the longest time was that it was a Daniel Day Lewis fashion mm-hmm. person. Which gotta say, uh, it's so fun to think about those early reports because I think Paul Thomas Anderson, like uh, Tarantino and a few select others, just create rampant speculation as news. So I remember when reports were coming out saying that this was going to be like something in the 70s, I swear, at first. I mean, now it's it's a 50 or whatever. But, and that it was going to be based on a real person and that it was going to be like in and out of clubs and it was going to be a return to more of a boogie nights feel, <laughs> which obviously this was not. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny when you have so few details, what people will just fill in the blanks with. Well, especially with the internet these days, yeah. pretty much one person says one thing and all of a sudden it's actual news right? like a day later. But so. it's, I think it's filmmakers like the one they mentioned that it, when, when you're not like a like a Star Wars or a Marvel property, we forget to put like fan theory or, you know, like rumors. We just think that this is we know best or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well. With PTA, it's best to just actually just to wait until the theater because even true. the trailer is going to be somewhat misleading because he's famous for including things in the trailer that aren't actually going to be in the film. Although, we should, well, I guess we don't have to talk about it, but I felt like this was his first trailer in a long time that, I mean, he. The majority of it was actual footage. Yeah, and I would say the tone and the editing rhythms, like, um, like, first of all, PTA is one of the. F- few if not like one of the 
less than one percent of filmmakers who actually has final cut on his trailers. He mm-hmm. creates them. He like he doesn't just approve them, but he actually doesn't edits. create multiple trailers either. Right, just has yeah. one usually. Yep. Yeah. And he's been doing that since I know since Magnolia at least. I don't know if he did it prior to that, but mm-hmm. um, I've always loved his trailers. They're always like incredibly enticing without actually giving anything away. But this was the first time where I felt like I watched. Like, I never would call his trailers misleading in a bad way. Like, I think he just tries to hide things so that way when you go to see it, it's an experience. Which but, makes sense. Yeah, but <laughs> this is the first time I feel like in a long time where I felt like that trailer actually stands side by side with the movie as far as, like, that's exactly what it is for two hours. Um, yep. Obviously with a few revelations here and there, but uh, for the most part. Yeah, uh, I mean, we'll get more in depth about it too, but... This is definitely a film, at least in my opinion, that um, is completely character-driven and yeah. has very has very little to do with the actual plot. In fact, you could easily watch this film and feel like there is no true plot happening. Yeah. But so, at any rate, uh, this is an interesting film, not only because it's Paul Thomas Anderson's eighth film. So, I mean, he's he's. Not Woody Allen out there putting yeah. a film out. Well, he's no. definitely not Woody Allen. But he's not yeah. Woody Allen out there putting a film out every year. You know, he's he's not selective. I would say like Daniel Day Lewis is, but at the same time, he's not. He's making a film probably once every three years, maybe four years. So yeah. Although I feel like he's in a faster mode now because the time it took him between like Punch Trunk Love and like There Will Be Blood felt like he might have actually given up at some point. Not because it was so long, but... Oh, that's because There Will Be Blood was his masterpiece. Right. And then uh, ever since then, I feel like he's kind of like Tarantino where I'm surprised by how quick he's turning these out because they're in no way like rushed or anything like that but he says that once he starts it goes yeah like he says a due date and it actually comes out at that point yeah because we talked about that that we were going to be surprised if this actually made it out this year and of course it it well in select cinemas it did so but yeah this is a a film that is daniel day lewis's supposed final film which is um i i guess we take him at his word but when anyone who is a performer says that it's their final anything, it's got to be taken with a grain of salt. But as you have said, Nick, uh, being as it's Daniel Day-Lewis and he already was selective and he's not really a celebrity or needing the attention, I'm sure he doesn't need the money. Um, I could very well never hear from him again after the Oscars this yeah. year, let alone see him again. So we'll see. Uh, also starring in this film are Vicky... Crepes? Creeps? Creeps? Crepes? I feel like it's creeps because I saw a wonderful tweet the other day where <laughs> someone wrote um, the lyrics to Radiohead's Creep, but just put Vicky Creeps instead. So it was Vicky Creeps, Vicky Weirdo. That's, Vicky, what the hell am I doing here? Anyway. That's pretty that's pretty It is great. actually pretty great. That's pretty great. So I'm, I'm going with Creeps from now on. Vicky no Creeps what. it is. That'll work. <laughs> Until we're proven wrong. Yeah, even uh, that, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and then also Leslie Manville playing the other major role uh, as Daniel Day-Lewis's sister. And by the way, it should probably be mentioned that Daniel Day-Lewis's character's name in this film is Reynolds Woodcock, which yep. is fantastic. They literally had a conversation where once one of them, I don't know if it was Daniel or Paul, but one of them came up with the name. And then the other one was like, we can't actually do that, can we? And then 
one of them was like, well, let's film a day's worth with it and just see if it works. And then they, they did. And so I like that it was kind of born out of a stupid, like, joke. But the thing is, is that it's like, haha, funny, I guess, when you like look at that's his name. But in the actual context of the film, it never really even comes up. So. Yeah. Except for the House of Woodcock. Yeah, well, that's pretty funny, I guess. So the film is set in the 1950s, where Reynolds Woodcock is a renowned dressmaker who... Wow. <laughs> who fastidious? Fastidiously? No, there's no Lee at the end. Oh, what is it? Fastidious life? Oh, oh okay. I'm okay. sorry. I'm, I guess I'm stupid. No, 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 no. Who's, who, whose life <laughs> is disrupted by a young, strong-willed woman, Alma, who becomes his muse and his lover. That was pretty good. Oh, it was written by Focus Features. Oh, <laughs> okay. there you go. That's right. That's there's right there for you. <laughs> and as you probably already know, uh, the film was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, and this is his first film since Inherent Vice, but that was 2014, so it wasn't too long ago. Yeah. So, yep. So, Nick, yeah. um, I'm guessing you want to go first. I can. You are the resident Paul Thomas Anderson. Nice to be huge here. Huge mega fan. So. It me. Yep. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, he's my favorite director working today. And it, that is has in no way changed since seeing Phantom Thread. Uh, I definitely think it's in the upper echelon of his uh, career. Um I have so many things to say, and I'm not even going to say half of them on this episode, because I feel like there's so much to unpack, especially upon repeat viewings. Mm-hmm. But after having seen it twice, I guess I can start to say that I think this movie is fantastic. I think the central couple, uh, the relationship between Alma and Reynolds is superb in a way that I was not expecting, um, based on... Uh, the trailer and based on just PTA being PTA, I was expecting it to be a lot more kinky or a lot more dark, but I would say 95% of what they do in this movie is actually what every couple does. Like, you can say that there are certain times when one of them is being a huge dick, which is absolutely true, like um there there are the brief moments like him uh with the uh lipstick in the in their first dinner scene mm-hmm. um when he's like i want to see who i'm looking at uh, you know and and makes her take off her lipstick which is also it's creepy but it's also something he would only do i would think at least in the early parts of the relationship when he didn't think of her as a person that i think he was going to spend the rest of his life with which is also a very bad thing i think well Anyway, we'll get into that. It, <clears throat> but if I can yes. really quickly interject, yeah. I feel like a very important part of this film, um, and something that brings any sort of I don't, sympathy is the wrong word, any sort of benefit of the doubt you could give Reynolds, um, is somewhat taken out by the fact that we start this film off with him with another woman who's been living there, who yeah. gets disposed of by his sister, yep. which has the feel of we've been down this road many times so yeah however all of alma and uh reynolds 
beginning conversations, which are not unlike any couple's beginning conversations when you start to try to figure out what the boundaries are in a relationship, what the expectations are. It's Reynolds technically saying that he's not made for this and he likes things a certain way. So it's kind of funny because... But yet he he's the one who courted her, so it's... Absolutely. So there's so many contradictions in this movie, but I think in a very human way and not in a bad writing way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I absolutely love this relationship between the two of them. I think it's actually pretty downright romantic, uh, particularly after two viewings. Certainly the first time I was slightly more put off by the way that they interact with each other, not just one to the other, but both of them to each other. Um, But... This is actually a pretty straightforward classical romance just dialed up the, to 11 when it comes to passive aggression and actual aggression. Um, there there are so many uh, things I want to talk about. One of them is I like that this is a very – not a very – it's a completely sexless film. This – like – we don't even really get the sense that the two of them have a sexual relationship. We can assume, which is understandable, and mm-hmm. I would understand why anybody would assume that. But it seems like they have other things in place of sex, which is, one, their meals. I don't think that they're ever more <laughs> at uh, passionate, and not just because of the final meal that they have in the movie. Oh, but throughout the film, yeah. Uh, but throughout the film... Mm-hmm. It it is them. That is when they come alive, so to speak. It's when they get at their most, uh, either their best or their worst qualities. Um, so I like the idea that they replace that, or they replace sex with that. In my opinion, at least she on just screen. wants to make her hungry boy happy. That's right. <laughs> um, also, of course, his dressmaking. Uh, you know that first scene uh, when he brings her back to his country home, and he gets her measurement, mm-hmm. um, which. I remember the first time I watched it, I thought it was, like, extremely degrading, which it has elements of that. But I feel like I also watched it with a different eye the second time around because I totally see, and this is all comes down to Vicky Creep's uh, performance, I totally see, like, a one-act or two-act play happening in that one scene alone where... He is doing what he does best, obviously, which is essentially treating women like models uh, and taking her measurements. And I like the the ebb and flow of her reactions to it because I feel like at first she's disappointed because she's starting to, at that moment, she starts to think that that's all she is to him and like there's some kind of disappointment of being just a piece of meat and or just being a mannequin for his creation but something happens along that line in that scene for me that actually that's her turning point of when she realizes how much she kind of enjoys it when she starts to plant her own foot down because it's in that scene alone where she when he starts to tell her to stand up straight or he said stand like you were before and she's like what do you mean and he's like, you know, stand up straight. And she's like, why didn't you just say that? And, like, I don't think any past girlfriend of his, so to speak, would have gotten away with something like that. I think he would have just, like, and I don't mean that he would just, like, start beating them. But, like, you know, it just those relationships would have already ended at that point. And that's what draws, uh, I think, her into him and, and in, into his life and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, there's so many things about this movie. Uh, part of it is a ghost story um, with the whole uh, thread. 
of his dead mother, which even though there's only about two to three scenes that explicitly reference her, whether he talks about her being sewed into his breast pocket or her at the early dinner when he says, I feel like the dead is watching us, and most people would find that spooky, but not me. And, and of course, the hallucination. I was going to say, the for me at least, the hallucination scene is the best scene of the film. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that it is for everybody, but I think that is, for me, the connection between Reynolds and, it, well, for me, it's the only time we see Reynolds Woodcock, the person truly being himself, which I thought was great because he was so vulnerable in that scene. And yeah. that part of that is because Daniel Day-Lewis is so great at doing his job. Um, but I love the idea of that, that the way that whole scene just played out. It was great. I actually agree. In fact, let's let's talk about that scene. Mm-hmm. Evan, I'm going to throw it to you for general okay. thoughts because I'm just going to ramble anyway. So one thing I actually, I, I'm with you in that that's, if not my favorite scene, easily one of my top three or whatever favorite scenes of this entire movie. And that's where, for me, this movie gets its title. Um, the, the camera movement and the blocking of Alma's character when she enters. So first we see the dead mother uh, at the other end of the room. And I like too, that he just casted that woman to just stand there. Like he didn't somehow make it perfectly still or anything like, cause she kind of moves a little bit the same way. Anybody who is trying to be still uh, just kind of reverberates and whatnot. And so what I love is it's at that moment that him and Alma will be stitched together forever because Alma walks in through the door uh, while the mom is still being seen in that room, right? And she comes closer to Reynolds, uh, dotes on him for a second, crosses over to the bathroom, and the, uh, the mom is still there. But when she comes out of the bathroom a second time and she passes by, the mom disappears from beneath or from behind uh Alma's blocking which is quite literally like a phantom thread going through and that is the moment in which one replaces the other and I I didn't catch that for me at least until the second time and that's kind of the key to the whole movie because Reynolds is in in the way he is looking for someone to adhere to his routine um he's way more looking for someone to replace his mother and it's at that moment when she finally does both due to his desires of what he wants out of a partner but also due to her uh bluntness in what she wants to get out of a uh out of a partner as well and so that blocking just blew me away so didn't think of that it's just the one because i've only seen the film once yeah However, um, I do love that scene going into the following scene, which is the morning after when Reynolds is feeling better. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he just proposes to her basically out of the blue. Um, And I feel like there is some – I have a very interesting – I guess I have an interesting read of that scene because I feel like it's pretty ambiguous about Alma's reaction to that because – She's very delayed, yeah. which is either surprise or happiness or, um, you know, I just poisoned him and now he's like believing that <laughs> I'm alive and life right, is great right. and I have no more time and we should get married, which when I saw the film for the first time, I'm like, oh, this is bullshit <laughs> because that's another thing that's great about PTA uh, and about this particular part of the film is that I think it's 
very clear that she was the one who poisoned him, and there's no hiding that. Where I feel like most other filmmakers would have tried to make the first incident almost like a surprise for the audience. To right, have it like come a back camera later. just like gracefully goes across the kitchen, and you see mushrooms there, mm-hmm. but it's like 20 minutes later or yeah. something. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I think this film is great in that aspect because it lets the audience in on that from early on in the film. And it's very clear, I feel like, at least to a somewhat seasoned viewer, yeah. that that's what's happening. Yep. Um, and that's... It's a very ambiguous scene because why does she have such a delayed reaction? And he actually gets kind of angry about it, too. Right. Like, right away. So. And what's interesting about that scene, too, is that her delayed reaction uh, upon hearing his proposal is followed up with her making sure that she asks him before the conversation is over. So, you know, even he doesn't get to technically propose, even though she accepts it, she still has to say, will you marry me? And which, of course, knowing what we know about uh, what she likes to do to him and whatnot, like, I, I still think that their dance is way more in the spotlight than it seems after the very first viewing. And I, I still think there's a much more unspoken contract between them from practically from the first scene that they meet. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's a little detail where, because um, that's what I was trying to pick up on my second time. I was trying to see just how in control either one of them was. And I thought from the very beginning, she was way more in control, not more in control than Reynolds, but more in control than I initially thought from the first viewing even in like background of scenes, like there's a scene in which they're walking on the countryside. It's the scene where she says her trailer line of uh, whatever you're going to do, do it carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in that, whatever, I don't know why, but the fact that he's carrying her shoes, it just seems like a very, uh, like he's her bitch. <laughs> Not necessarily literally, but I feel like if you add up all the little moments that I noticed, and that was just like one of tiny things that, it, it was kind of playing out like their very first conversation when they go back to the country house is, uh, is her saying, if we're going to have a steering contest, you will lose. And, and all these things just added up. Which to... he immediately blinks after then. So that's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so the shoes yeah. thing, I will say. Which that they I... also do in the very final scene, by the way. Oh, really? Well, and oh. not the final, but the dinner scene is them staring at each other as he's like taking his bite and neither one of them are blinking until finally she doesn't blink, she just tells him exactly what's happening, and of course he confirms that he knows and he's okay with it, but they don't blink. Hmm. So, anyway. Did not notice that either. That's why we keep you around. <laughs> um, Shoes? or Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I don't put that much stock into that, because it's like an early part of their relationship type yeah. thing. So, yeah. So, yeah. my opinions on Go. this. Um... I am for sure a Paul Thomas Anderson fan. I've seen all of his theatrical releases. Uh, I like them in various degrees. I only dislike one of them, which is one of your favorites, which is funny. Which uh, one? Uh, Punch Drunk Love. I oh, okay. didn't care for that at all. Um, however, I think his earlier work for me personally, uh, far surpasses what he's been doing over the last decade about. Um, I think There Will Be Blood is clearly the high point for him, uh, which a lot of people do. Uh, But at the same time, I think a lot of his earlier films, uh, specifically Boogie Nights, uh, Magnolia, and Heart Eight are all fantastic. Uh, But 
recent very underrated it's a very good film and it's very interesting watching like these big time directors their early works i know you had talked about that this is like his film straight out of film school just making a very not sure what kind of director even he is yet and yet it's still a very good film for me at least it's just the epitome of what a debut film should be which is nothing ambitious just him learning his craft with a seasoned actor to anchor the entire thing. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. And, um, you know, you look at other filmmakers who I won't say are bizarre filmmakers, but um, a lot of people, um, I, I'm trying to think of examples here, um, definitely Terrence Malick. Um, also, too, why am I dropping it right now? I'm sorry. This should not be this hard. The Shining. Kubrick? Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. Their early films, very much more conventional than their later works. Um, And I think that's definitely the same kind of thing with Hardy. But yeah, I think that Paul Thomas Anderson throughout his career has kind of peaked for me. And now he's in another phase where I know that you are somewhat on the opposite because I know you still love Magnolia the most. Yeah. But... You're a huge fan of Phantom Thread. You're a huge fan of Inherent Vice. Yep. And you really enjoy the master. Yep. Um, and I think part of it is because I've only seen Phantom Thread once. I've only seen Inherent Vice once. I've only seen the master twice. Um, but I feel like that they just don't have the same bite as his earlier films do for me. Yep. So, Which I think one of the great things about Paul Thomas Anderson is that He's got films that are liked to various degrees, but that being said, I give all of his films other than Punch Drunk Love a positive rating, and I know you give all of his films a very high rating, and so um, it's not like me saying that The Master is my sixth out of eight favorites that would make it seem like it's bad, but really, I enjoy The Master. I think it's pretty good. I think it's... I think that was actually, maybe I'm wrong here, but that was like the first time that I really felt that Joaquin Phoenix was actually a good actor. No, that was the start of his comeback. I mean, mm-hmm. um, that was right after he was outed from the... Um, the rap thing? Yeah, the, yeah. what do you call that movie? I'm Not There, I'm I Not think. There. Yep. Um, that was right after that was revealed to be a, a Hoax, whatever. pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and so therefore people started to reevaluate his acting skills because a lot of people bought that. Um, I mean, not necessarily bought it in like they were, it was like whiplash when it was revealed, but was quite, I think, entertained by the commitment, which is half of acting, you know, it's just Although it's committing. interesting that people I did... mean, that David Letterman interview was like a pop culture phenomenon. And he I know concerts too. Well, right. Yeah. But those were more just YouTube... What, yeah, but I mean, as far as like people's exposure to them, mm-hmm. um, but that David Letterman interview interview was pretty great because whether it was no, it was actually they did reveal that even Dave knew it was or did he, I can't remember if they revealed that anyway, but whether he was acting or not acting, that on a national stage he was still able to keep it up to the point where even some of our most uh, foundational uh, entertainers were being flustered by this act, so to speak. Yep. And you see he's come out on the other side, and uh, obviously the master and, and her advice, but it, it also her. Yeah. Um, 
the film that me and you are both interested in seeing, which I'm I'm forgetting the title right now. Yeah, I forgot the name of it. And then he's had the film at Sundance that has been getting a lot of uh, praise as well. So um, he's definitely been a big part of PTA's last two films up until now. Should be doing more. (laughs) So getting into actually talking about Phantom Thread. Um, with all that being said about Paul Thomas Anderson, I was interested in this. I'm a huge Daniel Day-Lewis fan. I've pretty much seen every one of his films, at least every one of his films from the last 25 years, which is pretty large, even though he's very selective. Yeah. And I always think he's fantastic, um, and a lot of people do, because he's a very good actor. Um, but the idea of this being his last performance really just got me even more interested in this film and going to see it. I really enjoyed this, but didn't love it. And I think the big reason for that is that the same reason why I was lukewarm on the master, especially the first time I saw it and lukewarm on inherent vice, because I feel like I expect a certain amount of, intrigue out of PTA films that has not been given to me from his last three efforts. I think his earlier films all the way up to there'll be blood were highlighted by actors and characters giving scene stealing performances. And I feel like there haven't really been that there hasn't really been that kind of thing in these last three films, which is I can see that. Partly why I'm a little lukewarm on them. Because I could see, I I would think possibly at least, that for someone who did not like Punch Drunk Love, maybe you would even concede that Adam Sandler is doing something interesting Mm -hmm. in there, which nobody saw coming. I just thought that movie was boring. Right, right. But I'm just saying as far as like that was something that Paul Thomas Anderson did and nobody else was able to do at that time. And nobody else has really done since other than uh, Noam Baumbach just recently kind of dug him out of the grave a little bit with uh, the Myrowitz story, yeah. but yeah, anyway. Which he took a lot of people out of the grave, because wasn't Dustin Hoffman in that? Yeah. And he's he's, he's in trouble now, too. He is. But, yeah. Although, I feel like that just makes that movie better, because <laughs> in that movie, he plays an old asshole who thinks that he's still owed a lot of things, even mm. though he's not, so. Well, that seems yeah. very timely. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but... Go, not, we don't have to go through his whole history, but obviously Boogie Nights and Magnolia is just filled with amazing character performances. I mean, he made Marky Mark an actual actor, which at that time was crazy. Well, And, and now it's like, oh, God, what did you do? I mean, looking back on it, though, I mean, look at how much he got out of Burt Reynolds, who's, yeah. whose career has been over before that movie came out. Yeah. Um, John C. Riley. That was before he really came about. Yeah. Even the small characters in that, like William H. Macy, who's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you so get a lot the of the only one who appreciates Philip. Uh, <laughs> or no, not Phil. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman obviously is a, until he died with a trademark of his movies because he was in every single one except for There Will Be Blood until mm-hmm. his death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was going to say Philip Baker Hall. He's the only one who seems to understand how great he is. Yeah, Philip Baker Hall is a very very good actor. But you got the same thing pretty much happening in Magnolia with all these huge performances. And then There Will Be Blood has the very showy performance by Daniel Day-Lewis, which he was absolutely fantastic in. And I feel like there's really no debate about that. Um, And then the last three films, I feel like the performances just haven't been there. And I feel like it's not necessarily because of the people who he has in the films. I feel like it's more script-based, which... I can see that. 
it isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just not necessarily what I've always. I would slightly strive for for, what I've always enjoyed from his films. I would slightly fight that on the basis Mm -hmm. of Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master because I think that's his defining role for me. I'll give you that. And, you know, what you think of the movie. Him and Twister is his defining role, by the way. Well, (laughs) I mean, at the very least, put them side by side. But um, no, but, and, and I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll concede that one a little bit. But the fact that it's one character in yeah, the film as opposed to many sure. in other films, and even, even Paul Dano in um, There Will <laughs> Be Blood was at least brought intrigue into the film and yeah. uh, made that final scene that much better. True, although it did kind of ruin Paul Dano for me, for <laughs> just in the sense that a lot of people have now casted him to do that. Well, I think maybe it ruined him. It's typecasted him yeah. just a, just Although, a apparently, his directorial debut was just at Sundance. Wildfire? Is that it? Or Wild Life? Wild, Wild Life. Life. Something. Yeah. But it was supposed to be actually really good. So, anyway, maybe mm-hmm. uh, he'll go behind the camera. And that was co-written by him and Zoe Kazan? I think. Wait. Maybe? Because they're married. Are they? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Good for you, Paul. Yeah. Um... I, all I know is Carrie Mulligan is in it. Yeah. So I'm very interested because I love Carrie Mulligan. Yeah. Yep. So other than the acting performances and the characters bringing down the film, I feel like this film is a very strong Paul Thomas Anderson film that I didn't have enough to jump up and say, hey, this is good. Enjoy this for me. Um, I'm pretty much going to concede to what you were saying about most of this film because – as soon as you bring things up, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> and yeah. maybe for me, as not being as nearly as big of a Paul Thomas Anderson film yeah. fan as you. I was going to say, I, I go hard. Yeah. Which I don't for quite a few other directors. Which is fine. <laughs> but I think you feel about him like I do about somebody like Martin Scorsese, yeah. where when his films come out, I pretty much have all the lines memorized after two viewings. Yeah. And I'm willing to go back as many times as possible because... Yeah. I just like what he's putting down. Yeah. And I think that PTA uh, creates a lot of very interesting situations throughout this entire film, which makes the film as a whole very easy to watch, which is a great thing to say for his films. Because um, especially the first time viewing The Master, that's not necessarily a film that you could sit down and just easily say, oh, well, that was digestible. Yeah. Um, you're where, not, like, munching on popcorn when you're watching no, the movie. Where, where this is at least got something to keep the audience's attention at pretty much every turn, even if it does have some points where it lulls. Uh, I feel like this has a nice ebb and flow throughout and actually has quite a bit more comedy than I thought it was going to. Yeah. Um, including that one absolutely fabulous scene, uh, which I think is my favorite PTA scene since There Will Be Blood, uh, since the um, the final scene of There Will Be yeah. Blood. But the scene where uh, he and Alma go to get the dress back Barbara. is... Uh, oh boy. What's the, the guy's name that he mentioned? Kale. Kale? Yeah. That scene... The way he pops out, he goes, hello, Mr. Woodcock. And then he's like, Kale. Kale. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just runs back in the room. That is that felt like such a like that was like a Todd Phillips scene, yeah. uh, smashed into a PTA film, and okay. it was perfectly placed in there, and it was just wonderful. Here's what I'll say though: it, I think his recent trilogy of movies, which I would call, 
I guess I wouldn't call anything. But these <laughs> last three movies, maybe I'll call it the 70 millimeter trilogy because they've been shot on film, whereas they've been shot on film in an era in which that's no longer uh, standard practice. Um, but I feel like that's all over these past three movies where no matter how serious they seem, you still have one of the greatest cinematic fart jokes in The Master. You still have Inherent Vice, which is actually a comedy. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't find it funny, you don't find it funny, but technically it's going for random, off-the-wall, you know, detours in comedy. Um, So, you know, it it didn't surprise me at all, but I will admit the way it fits inside this love story is just hilarious. Uh, Between that, um, between some of his mannerisms, like him uh, shouting about cheek when he's just like, fucking cheek? What does that even word mean? Whoever thought of that word should be taken out in public and spanked. <laughs> little things like that. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. Yep. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in agreement. I loved a lot of uh, the comedic parts of Reynolds' character. I thought they were uh, very well-timed, and I thought they landed for the most part really well. Um, and then I've kind of been a little bit all over the place here, but so was I. Yeah, I'll I'll end my initial comments by saying that that I think this is a film that only would get better on the on the rewatch. I don't really see myself giving this a lower grade at any point. I don't give this a negative grade, or you know, I, I give it a positive rating on the first viewing. Even though uh, I will have to say that, that it's still in the mix of the last three films for me with PTA, which is that they're not his best work, but even even that being said, it's really hard because they're not my favorite films of his, and they're not, I don't think, his best work, but at the same time, uh, he is just a fabulous filmmaker that knows exactly what he wants to do with the camera and with his actors, and... That's really all anybody should look for these days in films where we have so many fucking Jumanjis just running around <laughs> out there where even if they might be mildly entertaining, um, you have very few filmmakers who are uh, aware of what their craft is and willing to put it on the screen every three to four years. Yeah. One thing I'll say that I think is hard about evaluating the films of PTA, and maybe I'm being pretentious, but... Um, I genuinely believe that whatever your opinions are on the individual film, like whichever one you like most, whichever one you like least, whether you hate one, love one, whatever, um, I don't think it's hard to deny the fact that what's challenging about these last three films, I'll say, is that like, I think personally he only gets better as a filmmaker with age. Now, whether that he's making better films is kind of different, but as far as his technique behind the camera in the editing room uh, with Johnny Greenwood and the score, you know, and in this oh, case... The score in this film was great. It was, and in mm-hmm. this case he was his own DP for the very first time. Like, he is only becoming a better version of himself behind the camera, which is why, like, when we get these, like, latest trio of films, which I'll admit that I don't even love two out of... Uh, three of them as much as I love some of his earlier work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so hard to deny that the craftsmanship is on a whole other level than what he was doing when he was only like 25 or 23 when he was just out of film school. So mm-hmm. that's what just gets kind of weirdly confusing about watching his trajectory as a filmmaker. Um, yeah, I I know a scene that I think you quite enjoyed for its uh particularly for I think the cinematography and the editing, but the uh New Year's Eve oh, dalliance so is, is fantastic. Yep. Um 
There, there's so the, much. The, the lead up to that scene yes. as well is just um, great. First of all, a when they're playing backgammon, mm-hmm. I the second time I saw that I was cracking up at everything, even though I'm technically just cracking up at someone being uh, a dick because when she when he's like, oh boy, well when he. Shows her that she, you know, she did the wrong from the four pocket instead of sit, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Well, I hope you're not going to start cheating this early in our marriage." And, <laughs> and she just gets pissed off, rightfully so. And she's like, "This is a stupid game." And then he's like, "Well, I dare say that if you were victorious and confident in your game, you would actually not find it to be a stupid game." And when she says to have fun with her, his next opponent, and he's like, well, I think I will, because anything is more fun than this. <laughs> just, oh, God. That scene is just delightful. Um, but the way that that segues into her going against his wishes and going to the New Year's Eve party, no matter what he says, which I absolutely love, because the, it's not a smash cut, but the two things after she leaves um a his repeated look through the doorway where he has to crane his entire oh, body yep. just to see if she actually left and then cut to him literally standing in front of the door like a child with his arm kind of like outstretched like wait is she not coming back is <laughs> is just absolutely great and of course that just all leads to that exquisitely framed uh party sequence that was the first time i felt like he's captured the feel that we got from the cinematography in Magnolia. Yeah, um, and I, I can see that. I thought it was great. Yeah, and, and it's only for like 30 seconds in that one no, scene, but it, it, it was just it's fantastic. Perfect. And obviously it's, it's cheap, but, you know, just the sight of the balloons falling oh, no, at, with yep. him in the midsection of it. Um, and also what I love about that is that there's something deeply romantic, even though it leads to him taking her out, which she doesn't technically fight to be, like, he's not dragging... now. This is all part of their relationship, so mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where you have to give in to the fact that both of them want this to some degree. But before that, the the deeply romantic part for me is that even if it's just a little thing, but that is, I think, PTA tipping his hand that for, for being New Year's Eve and for being at a huge party, he's still able to find her in a crowd, which I don't think is actually, maybe the first time I saw it, it was like maybe creepy or predatory, but the second time I saw it, I, it actually looked more just like him like finding her almost instantly because she stands out amongst everybody. Oh, and she stands out about all the other people who are dressed in very racist garments. So. Well, and that that as well. <laughs> and, and technically, too, he doesn't actually go down there until it seems like she's not having a good time because she kind of trips over one of the drunk who knocked into her. So that whole scene is kind of a microcosm where like it's not that he's like a good person but like some of his best intentions get warped and dwarfed by his own uh malicious uh self-centrism uh yeah i love that scene um i have a bit of a different reading on it where i i feel like that is him not being able to handle uh the the idea of her being out um with people that aren't him. Yep. Yeah. Um, and him, I feel like he definitely does pull her away. And, and yeah. you know, the, the idea that she, at least, even though she might not be in the idea of this is what their relationship is going to be, but I feel like her either romanticizing or fantasizing about the idea of him coming to dance with her wearing a tuxedo at this party uh, was just never going to happen. Yeah. Although, uh, we do see at the end of the film that they do end up uh, doing that. Or do they? 
Because her narration says, I look to the future and I see the scenes that I believe will come. So I'm just being devil's advocate or Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, One thing that you're saying, though, about the New Year's Eve scene is kind of pretty much why I love this movie and a lot of PTA in general, which is that when you give your interpretation of that scene, I genuinely think that the strength of him as a filmmaker is that when you say that and then I say, oh, I could totally see why someone would read it that way. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not just saying that in a way where, like, oh, yeah, anybody could read that, even though I kind of believe in my... Like, I genuinely think all of these readings and whatnot are, like, exactly equally valid because it is opaque in its way that it knows how human beings can be oftentimes undecipherable and, well, it's and what your perspective is. And what from you from what it. you're describing is very interesting because it's something that I guess I haven't really thought about, but about PTA being one of the few people who could create a film and make a film to have it be viewed like a book almost where... Um, the viewer makes up their own mind about uh, certain characters or certain scenarios, uh, whereas they're not being told what exactly is happening, but they're being told the story and they can decide on their own, which is probably the, one of the ultimate um, compliments you could give someone who's actually trying to be a genuine filmmaker like PTA definitely is uh, because that's, forever pretty much been the knock on films is that it uh, takes away from the imagination of reading uh, yeah. text. Um, and I think that Tries he... Tries to tell the audience mm-hmm. what's happening. Where I feel like he's telling a story more than most other filmmakers and letting the audience decide uh, what they believe actually is, is occurring throughout it. So. Yeah. Well, for example, the character of Cyril, which we haven't talked about too much, so I think that'll probably be one of the last major things we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the first time I watched this, I thought of her as uh, quite an evil, not evil evil, but just a very sternly cold, uh, manipulative person. Whereas the second time I watched it, I almost thought of her as being on... Uh, almost side almost the entire time like other than maybe a few scenes in the very beginning when she was very unsure as to whether she was going to still be around the next day um some of her coldness i actually started to think was actually her trying to protect her um alma to some degree like the scene in which alma goes to her and wants her to arrange it so that she can throw a surprise dinner for reynolds and she's like i've got to advise against this this is a horrible idea you know the first time i watched that i'm like wow she's really being a bitch because she just wants to control her brother or whatever but seeing it the second time i was like you know she's not actually being like the only person she actually goes out of her way to be evil to is her own brother when he tries to start that one fight and she just said no you shut the hell up and if you even try to come at me i will come through you clean or something like that well i mean i think i think for me uh her character is a very intriguing character actually especially because we've we as the audience are almost withheld from her because she is a supporting character, obviously yeah. not one of the main people we're supposed to be following in the story, but she has a very important role nevertheless because she is really filling the role of his mother now that she is gone. Yes. Um, and I feel like she doesn't really want to be filling that role, but it's almost like he has a control over her that he won't let her leave. <laughs> um, and yeah. it it actually gets a little bit 
creepy at times because um, when everybody has gone home after she sends everybody home, and you already kind of mentioned it, how I was advised against that and multiple times and saying this isn't going to work, good luck, whatever. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character of Reynolds is almost a little bit beside himself that she's not there. Like, he yeah. almost has, like, a moment about it. Yeah, that's it. what he's most upset about, it seems, like, when that happens. And that's, that's and not in, like, a Calvin Candy way. No, no, but in, but in, in a... Like, ver- he can't function. Right, yeah. like, a, like, his sister is, his Linus's blanket here, and yeah. it's, yeah. and, um, <laughs> but... I really do feel like she is wanting to find somebody to like handle that. Uh, and I mean, it's not explicitly said throughout, but I feel like she wants to find a way to live her own life because it's clear to me, at least that she is just basically her brother's secretary. I was going to say everything good. She does for her brother only ever seems like it's in the interest to make sure that the company is, you know, continuing and that, yes, sometimes she bends over backwards, but that's just because her brother is crazy sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, And she's only doing that to make sure that he can still, you know, make dresses and whatnot. And, of course, Alma essentially fills that role by the very end, which is what drives him by the end of it. Yeah. But to me, she's never trying to get rid of her. No. And the final thing uh, that... Uh, Reynolds comes to her and he like he wants out of the marriage already, which she probably doesn't even. But he's just a baby, so he just starts to come to complain to her. And her response to that is just, "I don't like your whining because it hurts my ears." <laughs> like that, you know, it's just exactly how you handle a child, which mm-hmm. is very funny. Um, okay, one little detail I want to mention because it made me laugh and I'll <laughs> forget is that. I love the fact that the very first girl that we see, who's clearly the one in a uh, hundred that he's had before, uh, um, where he, <clears throat> excuse me, but where he has the breakfast with her and she tries to get him to eat a pastry and he's like, oh, I, I don't eat salty things or something like that. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you never told me that. Anyway, the next time he has breakfast with Alma in that room, he's eating one of those. Oh, is he? Yep. Like, he literally, like, it's sitting there at the table, so at first I'm like, oh, did she try to whatever? But I forgot, but at the very end of that scene, he literally, because he's very upset that Alma is uh, chewing too loudly or buttering her toast too much, he literally, before he gets up, just very defiantly grabs his piece, that it was his all along, grabs a huge big bite out of it and slams it down on the table and walks out, which I, I absolutely loved. The idea of him being a child, too, is very apparent throughout the entire film, and that's one of the better aspects of the film because it is entertaining uh, just in a visceral viewing uh, perspective, but at the same time, very uh, interesting knowing how the film ends and of him being this kind of childlike character, and he kind of has to be poisoned (laughs) to... Uh, become a decent person, yep. which is fucked up. Yeah. Um, Don't we all, though? Eh, I hope not. <laughs> I do love, uh, love, love, love um, everything about her buttering the toast and him getting so fed up about it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like one little detail of somebody that you didn't know about before you decided to live with them uh, that you find out about, which is pretty much just how it goes in real life. Um, yeah. And most everybody just kind of 
looks the other way yeah. and deals with it, but he's just obviously going to get what he wants. Well, I was so. going to say, every girl before him, he's either been able to either get rid of or change in that nature. But I love that at the end of that scene, and that's another indication that Elma was always his equal in mm-hmm. some ways, uh, was that, you know... Um, Cyril is basically like, maybe you should do breakfast after him or in your bedroom. And then she's like, oh, well, I, I think he's being pretty childish. And then she, Cyril goes on the thing about how, well, breakfast is the most important meal of his day. And if that's interrupted, then his whole day is thrown off. And she backs down because she goes, oh, I didn't know that. But I still think he's being childish. <laughs> and it's just the way she's having that last word mm-hmm. uh, with someone like Cyril, who at the very onset was intimidating her. But even a couple scenes in, she's already kind of putting her in her place is, is pretty great. So, yeah. so before yeah. we go to final ratings, yeah. uh, let's talk about something that is an integral part of this film. Yep. Uh, but is not a huge part of the plot, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the dressmaking. Yeah. And the... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to pat Daniel Day Lewis over the back too much because I do know he actually did learn how to make dresses, he did. which makes total sense. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, the idea of that being one of the big defining crux of this film, at least of the background of the character, our main character, at least, um, man, I I thought that was one of the better parts of the film, only because. Uh, it was so unique for this specific story in in a day and age where it seems like we're trying to bridge the gap between males and females, but then there is a large segment of the population that is trying to keep them as separated <laughs> Part of it as like the Red Sea. Well, yeah, yeah, it's pretty much correct. Yeah. Uh, we have this very manly. Um, kind of grotesque human in Daniel Day-Lewis, who's definitely a playboy. He's definitely not gay. Um, He's definitely a huge a-hole. And he's a fucking fabulous dressmaker. Like, he exemplifies a lot of the characteristics of somebody who loves their craft and it doesn't have to be part of their sexual orientation. Yeah. Um, And I, I love... That idea, especially in 2018, and I just love the beautifulness of him and his employees, who bizarrely pretty much live at his house, which is fucked up too, um, creating all of these garments throughout the film. And we actually see a lot of the creation of these dresses that we end up seeing, even if it's not actually creating them, but the idea of seeing the actual work of people sewing and stitching in that uh, I just absolutely love throughout the entire film. And really quickly, I love the idea of um, Alma doing that really simple sewing pattern next to him. And he like looks to her and like, Oh yeah. And you could just, you could just see that he's just like, fucking amateur. I was going to say, you're (laughs) literally waiting for him to say something, but he actually surprisingly doesn't, which makes you wonder if he was sick. Cause he's kind of laying down (laughs) Uh, just say it, you know, um, I'm with you in the sense that I one thing I loved about the dressmaking aspect of this movie is that two, I'll say two things, which is that a this could have very easily been one in a long line of uh, movies made about men, especially where you're a tortured genius, like we saw with Steve Jobs, we saw or uh, with a bunch of other movies that I'll just blank on now, but where someone is so. Ad- 
so good at what they do for work that they can't function in real relationships and whatnot. What I kind of like is that this downplays that a little bit in that he is so good at his work and he is dysfunctional in his relationship, but we don't see that being a correlation, I would say, um, throughout the whole film. I feel like they are pretty separate. Besides his rugged work hours and work ethic, I don't see how his dressmaking abilities and uh, his dressmaking uh, temperament really infects what he does with other human beings. Now, having said... Well, I'm just saying I don't see how that has to do with the way he... Like, his breakfast thing, I don't think that has anything to do with his... I think he's just a child. Like, that's what I'm well, trying think, to say. I, I think he thinks it has something to do well, with Well, right. But I'm saying, as oh. a viewer of the film... I just really found it to be, I wouldn't say quite separate, but I didn't feel that this was another tortured genius where story where at the end of the movie we were supposed to think, but he makes good dresses. Where well, like that's so insignificant yeah, but, but in I, his I, relationship. I think it is. It, it definitely does correlate for me the idea of he cannot be as good of a dressmaker, in his mind at least, if he is in a equal relationship. And I think we actually see that uh, tipped a little bit by Paul Thomas Anderson for me because of the very easy to see moment in the first large showy sick moment we see where um, he's going to view the dress the final time and he starts getting sick. And he actually ruins it. Yeah. Um, and it's, we hear the whole story about how this is, a pretty major dress that he's making and you end up having all of these other people who work under him having to stay after to finish this dress that he came up with or whatever. So here's what I'll say as to counter that, Mm -hmm. which is that I think Paul Thomas Anderson goes out of his way to show that Reynolds Woodcock is not the end all be all of his dressmaking company. There are numerous scenes in which the woman basically just do the work, uh, and he's nothing more than a glorified idea, man. I mean, the scene in which he gets sick over the dress, uh, what I kind of love about that is that they basically shoo him out of there, and no one needs him to come back in there to tell them to finish. Like, they're already working on it when Ciro comes back in the room mm-hmm. to tell them to keep working. Um, and at the end of the film, we even see in the montage, uh, which may or may or not be real when uh, uh, Alma is looking forward as to what their life will be like, we see her going through the House of Woodcock with the dresses. We we, we don't see him as much as we see her doing it Hmm. with her narration saying, I will protect your dresses from dust and from something else. Um, And for me at least, I, I always got the sense that in a lot of ways Reynolds Woodcock once again, bringing the child motif up, uh, is mostly just being spoiled and disillusioned as to his importance in this role. Um, and it doesn't mean that he's a bad dressmaker. I'm not saying like that, that that's literally impossible in, in this movie and in this context. Mm-hmm. But there's something very, I think, uh, pointed, but also enlightening about the fact that he essentially is able to do what he does because of a house full of women. And I think the fact that he works with women and no men whatsoever is extremely telling, and that has more of an influence on his relationship 
than his actual day-to-day work and like what he has to do to make dresses. So I, I think it, obviously all of these things are uh, completely tangled up together. So I'm not necessarily saying that um, because he's a good dressmaker that has nothing to do with his relationships or anything mm-hmm. like that. But it, it felt like there were far less scenes of him um, saying things like... Uh, even though he says it a few times, like, I'm working, it's more like he says things like, I can't start the day with the confrontation. You mm-hmm. know, he is working, but that's his outwardly spoken uh, defense of now. And so, which is even more childish because I feel like he's just literally saying what he wants, which is, I don't want to fight because I shouldn't have to and whatnot. Um, and, and yeah, and there are little moments like that where, so I just think it's a lot more complicated than just, he's a fabulous dressmaker she's a fabulous homewrecker or something, you know, like there, you know, it, it's not quite as cause and effect as yeah. that. So. And I do like a little bit of what you, where you're going with this in the idea that he almost uses being a dressmaker as an excuse of why he's able to be an asshole to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And everybody indulges it because he's a, I think too. He's the golden goose. He's the golden goose and he's a man. I do think yeah, yeah. historically speaking they needed for obvious reasons, you know, a figurehead which would be him. Um, and um, yeah, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I love what I kind of just brought up, the aspect of the fact that he didn't just choose this profession, I think, based on the reason he said, which he said he got into when he made his mother um, her wedding dress and whatnot, and he thought that that's like something he could do for women because he's like some women won't even touch a wedding dress, whatever. Which I I love the vanity of that, but like hmm. well, quite a few women will. Um, but I genuinely believe that what's fascinating about the mother. Uh, Thread, <laughs> so second time, but of, of this movie is that it, it, that's what infects everything, which is another reason why he chose this profession because he literally has to deal only with women. So in some way or another, his mother is never without him, which of course is what he says. Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes from everything from the the women who sew up his dresses when he's you know gives it off to them, to Cyril, of course, to the women he chooses to uh, be with. And so everything is just an extension of that. And the house of Woodcock is really the house of his mother, uh, but it just has his name on it now. Yeah. So anyway. Even though it really doesn't have his name on it. I mean, it has his last name. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So interesting. And we see really quick uh, mm-hmm. how malleable that name is because when the doctor shows up, he calls Alma Mrs. Woodcock, even though they are not married whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And she accepts it gracefully. And to, of course, to Cyril's slight uh, irritation, which I think is less because she doesn't like Alma, but more just because like that's a business thing. Like, uh, no, you're not a part of this. You know, <laughs> these are not your holdings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that scene, we also have the shift in which Cyril and Alma both re- uh, respond to Mrs. Woodcock from that point on uh, by the doctor. Mm-hmm. And it's immediately after that that uh, Alma is married and becomes the actual Mrs. Woodcock. So I love how that's also a nice little uh, threading of that uh, from point A to point B. Yeah. And she's been replaced. So anyway, final thoughts? Yep. Um I don't have too much to add to what we've talked about already. Um, 
I'm a fan of this film, and I think I'll actually probably like it more the next time I see it. However, uh, I still give this a favorable, not fantastic rating of three out of five because I feel like this film has its down points for me. Um, I, I don't get as much out of this as I have previous PTA films, and, and that's really nothing to say against this particular film. Uh, it just doesn't have the exact kind of ingredients that always give me the most enjoyment as like previous... Like poisonous mushrooms? <laughs> um, as previous Paul Thomas Anderson films have. So I think it's still a very good film and one that I'll definitely be wanting to rewatch here uh, at some point down the road. But not my favorite of his uh, for now. So three out of five for me for Phantom Thread. Yeah, I am a huge uh, fan of this movie. It's definitely one of my new favorites of his. It's right square in the middle for my ranking, so to speak. So it's um, because I love them all that much. Um, So, yeah, I can't wait to revisit this uh, repeatedly, I'm sure, to get more and more layers out of it. Um, A few last-minute things I'll mention is that I love the restraint when it comes to Daniel Day-Lewis monologue about the how he can sew anything into, uh, you know, a canvas of his clothes, which did not really come up other than one other time in which it had nothing to do with him, really, other than just maybe being wish fulfillment. But he stitches the phrase never cursed into uh, that one woman's uh, wedding dress, Mm -hmm. which um, is more about her than it is about him, even if it's a longing of Mm -hmm. his own. Yeah. I guess not more about her, but it it's uh it well, technically if you're doing something like that it's always about you because you're the only person who knows it. Um but in general there was no like moment when Alma rips open one of his suits to find out that he's HIV Alma's positive a bitch. or, yes. or <laughs> just some ridiculous I love how we went in very different directions there. <laughs> HIV positive. I don't know. So anyway I have AIDS. <laughs> Anyway, that would be uh, quite the. It would be that's, I mean, <laughs> the old dress confessional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you got. I have bet- four black children. <laughs> like the next time she's like, oh, so you have AIDS? Like, did you go into my pajamas? <laughs> okay. This could go. This could go a lot further than oh. I think we're able to. But yeah, no, boy, that's great. Anyway, <laughs> um, but like the the Paul Thomas Anderson never once goes down that alley of trying to uh, set up a ridiculous twist or even just whatever um there's no murders either in this no. film which not that there has to be no but, but it has it certainly a, felt like there may be there is a bit of gothic suspense to this story mm-hmm. so definitely i think until the very last scene anybody could have thought that that would have happened mm-hmm. um and so yeah i i absolutely love it i think it's a much more romantic movie than most people will grasp myself included on a first time viewing now if someone sees this movie and loves it but also thinks that they're the worst couple ever i totally understand but i think part of what this movie does stupendously is how it basically withholds not important details but withholds certain emotions and connections between human beings so that as the audience can then properly judge them for themselves before getting the full picture as to the length that they will go for each other, uh, which is an interesting exercise because we all have people in our lives where we look at certain couples and we're like, why are they together? Like, that's really stupid. Even though we know nothing about them, even if they are our best friend, you know, we are not with them 
behind closed doors. And that's oftentimes what's way more important uh, than what we see. And the ending, for me at least, certainly emulates that kind of feeling. So uh, I'm a huge fan. I think there's so much to say about this movie, but I'm done talking. So I give it four and a half out of five stars. Nice. Big fan right here. Big fan. So that being said, with his rating, um, something that our audience may be able to look forward to, I'm... Guessing it may come up on our top six episode. Maybe. 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 We'll see. We'll see. Uh, at any rate, uh, it'll be two episodes from now yeah. that uh, either just me and you or me, you, and Toussaint. Hopefully, Toussaint won't be there. I will, like, kidnap him. Make that happen. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's coming up in two episodes. But coming up next week, uh, our friend Anna will be coming back and joining us to talk about the film I, Tanya. Hey. Uh, the, the Tanya Harding uh, biopic, kind of biopic, yeah, yeah. Why not? That that came out uh, wide a couple weeks ago and has been select theaters since late December ish. Yeah. Um, and I know Anna really wanted to see it and yeah. she really wanted to talk about it. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to having the episode. I'm excited and having her on the episode. So I might go see it for a third time in preparation because I've seen it twice already. Yeah, maybe I'll go with you. Hey, hey, hey. So anyway, that's coming up on our next episode. If you have any thoughts on either Phantom Thread or I, Tanya, or if you out there have a year-end top six, we'd love to see them. Uh, and Or any thoughts at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Or you can also try to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at filmtankshow. From Nick Cheney, hey. myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Film Tank. We will be catching up with you next time. Whee! Whee.